Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Hey, good morning, Journey Church. And uh, it's good to be back with you. Thank you for a week out where I could attend and officiate the wedding of my son and daughter-in-law. They are officially wed in holy matrimony and still in Maui. And I heard you had a great Sunday. I uh, read through Pastor Tyler's 24 pages of manuscript in his uh, slide deck. He is actually on an airplane now for a residency program for his PhD work. So we're trading places on these two Sundays. But it's great to be back. Here we are in our fourth Sunday in the magnificent Old Testament book of Esther. And this morning's message is entitled, Learning to Fly Upright in an Upside-Down Kingdom, or Flying Right-Side-Up in an Upside-Down Kingdom. You know, the first accidental death of a female combat pilot actually occurred right here in Arizona at the Barry M. Goldwater uh, Training Range. It was back in May 27, 1997, when she put her A-10 attack plane into the desert floor. Uh, Captain Amy Svoboda lost what is called situational awareness before her jet crashed during a night training mission. Now, another pilot in the area watched this happen, and that pilot said that they spotted her plane. It was flying upside down at about a 15-degree angle, and Svoboda's altitude was 3,000 to 4,000 feet above the deck. Swoboda herself was unaware that she was flying upside down, and at the time, she plunged to the ground when she actually pulled the stick back, attempting to climb. Investigators actually, um, upon discovery that, was that the, the, the two jet engines were near full throttle and the fat flaps fully extended, she fully intended to pull back into a steep climb. But instead, because of the orientation of her plane, she put it straight into the dirt. And here's the the brilliant analogy. You and I live in an upside-down world. We live in the upside-down kingdom of mankind. And if you were here last week or you listened to the podcast, Pastor Tyler outlined this. It's the same thing in Esther. It's the same thing today. That the kingdom of man is a decadent kingdom. It is full of decay, but it's got a thin paper veneer trying to cover it up. It's decadent. It's also foolish. When you step back and look at it and say, that's not going to work. And then finally we discover that it's, uh, it's insecure. There's no lasting security in the kingdom of mankind. The problem is... That you and I are born into it. Even if you've been in church from the time you're a child, you are a citizen of this planet. You are born upside down in that which feels right. You think that you're going to pull back on the stick, push forward on the throttle, and only to find out that your instincts were absolutely wrong. And it happens everywhere, Christians and non-Christians alike. And that's why so many of us are crashing and burning. We're flying upside down in the dark and unaware, not knowing which way is up. The way we live, the way we love, the way we do marriage, the way we do our sexuality, the way we manage and lead people that are are given to our care. If you're a leader, if you're a a supervisor, if you're a president or a CEO, uh, you think this is the, the thing that great leaders do only to find out in the end you are damaging people, you're damaging your own name and reputation, and no, it's not helping business. And yet it seems so natural. We even do it in ministry, we do it in the church. Just check the podcast, I can, I can uh, recommend a half dozen books to you that are being written on the great failure of the modern day megachurch and megachurch pastors. Churches that are supposed to be about the right side up kingdom and yet on the inside, everything is upside down. You can see it when when we have to face criticism in our own life, when we face conflict. 
that our instincts, when we go with them, we get, we get emotionally hijacked and we push on the throttle only to torpedo our lives and the way we hold grudges, the way we gossip, the way we triangulate things that we're not supposed to take to other people and yet there we are team building and we know better. We read the Bible and he said, I never want to do that again and yet the criticism comes or the conflict comes and we're calling our bestie on the phone saying, can you believe what just happened to me? We think we're pushing on the throttle and pulling up, doing the thing that seems right, the thing that seems just. They deserve it. Only to find out, wow, we're flying upside down again. I went through Pastor Tyler's uh, sermon, like I said, and when I was going through the slides and preparing these for today, I go, I can't throw this one away. I got to reuse a portion of Jeremy Treat, professor at Biola. And he says this, it's possible to have Christian beliefs, yet still live by another narrative. We can say we hold to the doctrines, the deity of Christ, and the inspiration of Scripture, justification by faith. We can identify as Christians and go to church on Sundays, yet in our day-to-day lives, we may still be living by a secular narrative that is about building our own kingdoms. I believe that many Christians today have been hijacked by a cultural narrative, and even worse, have learned how to baptize it with Christian lingo. In response, we need more than right beliefs with a bit of morality mixed in. We need a more compelling narrative. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us in the story of the kingdom of God. Because when push comes to shove, when stress hits, our stress response, nine times out of ten, even as children of God, even as the church, we're flying upside down. We are impulsively going with our emotions in finding ourselves ditching our A-10s into the desert floor. This is where the story of Esther comes in because we have a couple of very static characters that we can look at, the, the polar opposites, but then we got some dynamic characters in the middle that teach us a lot about what it means or what it looks like to going from people born into an upside-down world that are flying upside-down and learning through the process of life on how to actually turn it right side up. And so if you'll allow me, I'm going to do a little bit of review. For those who uh, have not been with us, go back and read Esther, it's 10, 10 chapters. only takes like 20 minutes to actually read it. I'm not going to go through all the details, that's on you. But if I could just give a, a paper-thin review. Um, the king's name is Ahasuerus, or Ashwerus however you want to say that, we find out from history it's King Xerxes, son of Darius the Mede, or as Pastor Tyler said last Sunday, King Headache. Headache to himself, headache to others, he drinks a lot of booze, he probably wakes up with a lot of headaches. We find the setting of the story is in Persia, actually the capital city, one of the capital cities of Susa, where King Ashwerus is, is throwing a 180-day brag fest. And the scripture says he's showing off his riches, glory, splendor, pomp, and greatness. At the end of that, he throws a seven-day party of open bar. And at the end of day, end of seven days of a bender, everyone in Susa gets to go on a bender with him. Shut off the phones, we're going to get rip-roaring drunk. At the end of that, he thinks it's a great idea to call out his queen Vashti to show off her beauty. And for whatever reason, the scripture doesn't tell us, but she doesn't come out. And he is left looking very foolish. And in his insecurity, he asks his wise man, what do I do? And they say, divorce her, depose her, banish her. And so he does. That's in the third year of his reign. Four years goes, go by between chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is now the seventh year of King Ashwerus's reign, where he throws a, a royal... Uh, beauty contest, and maidens from all over, 127 provinces are brought in for the king's consideration. Esther, on her first one night with him, is so completely pleasing to him that the beauty contest is instantly over, and a new queen is crowned. What we discover here is that even in uh, Mordecai, and I forgot to tell you about him, this is the, the cousin, the adoptive father of Esther. 
that Mordecai and Esther had the opportunity years prior to follow the call of God, um, an invitation issued by King Cyrus, two kings before Ashwaris, where King Cyrus said, hey, all Jews, go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And instead of going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple, Mordecai and Esther choose to stay and assimilate. And so you can say, well, there's such godly people. They're the heroes of the book of Esther, and yet you look at them and you go, actually, they're kind of compromising. See, they're born into an upside-down kingdom. And at many points, they're flying upside down. They're, they're fitting in. They're actually hiding their Jewish ethnicity instead of standing out and being counted. So that's some of the backstory of uh, the book of Esther and the beauty contest, whereby King, Queen Esther is named as the royal queen. Now, we're going to fast forward another five years. This is now in the 12th year of the reign of King Ashwaris. And a new prime minister of Persia is named. His name is Haman. So, so uh, Esther has been with the king now for five years. Haman is named as the new prime minister. And we discover Haman as Haman the narcissist. Haman the egotist. Haman the insecure. Haman the Agagite. And we talked about this four Sundays ago. Um, he is the enemy of God. He is the enemy of God's people, the Jews. And as upside down and compromising as Mordecai has been, when push comes to shove and the fog is lifted and he sees where he is flying, he turns the plane right side up, pushes forward on the throttle, and pulls back on the stick. And what am I talking about? That when push comes to shove and he realizes where he is and what he's doing, and he realizes that Haman, the prime minister, is the enemy of God, an ancient enemy of his tribe, he refuses to bow even though that is the law. I love Mordecai. Not a perfect guy, but when things become clear, he's going to do whatever it takes to fly right side up. This so infuriates the upside-down Haman that he cannot rest until Mordecai, and not only Mordecai, but all the Jewish people throughout the world are annihilated, men, women, children, and babies included. And so he begins to strategize how he's going to get the king to, to, to write an edict to commit a complete genocide of the Jewish people. And the way he goes about this is by rolling the dice, by rolling the purr. If you hear the word purr, it's where the holiday purim comes from. And it's really casting lots. He's looking for a fortuitous, magical day that the universe of fate and destiny is going to give him. And uh, we've got an artist in the congregation. He's four years old, Dashiell Hurst. Two Sundays ago when I was uh, speaking on this, he gave us an illustration for our book. That four years old, that is Haman rolling the dice. If I had a pointer, you could see that's a dice. You see his hand going like this? That's a four-year-old. That is the story of Esther in brown Crayola crayon. And uh, he's going to take his daddy to the airport right now, so we can't clap for him. But um, you know what? Uh, Dashiell's not the only artist in our congregation. In fact, after that sermon two weeks ago, someone slightly older, her name's Robert, uh, Robin Halverson. She's actually, her and her husband are actually serving in our Kidmen right now down there. She actually went home and wrote a poem that encapsulates chapter 1 through 7. And so instead of me telling the story some more, can I just read her poem? Okay. Uh, she entitled this, 24 Hours, A Little Rhyme of Remembrance from the Book of Esther. This is the story of Esther up through chapter 7. Ready for this? A sleepless monarch tossed in bed, a book of records ordered, read. A deed forgotten brought to light, unrewarded, can't be right. Who goes, a move to action sought, an unsuspecting Haman brought. 
what honor, glory shall bestow. Ah, tis for me that Haman glowed. Grand ideas with pomp and fame roll off his tongue, no thought of bane. And yet the honor's not for he, but for a hated enemy. So Haman shouts a public praise, an irksome task, an odious phrase. The shall be done unto the man the king delights to honor and... Haman hurries to his house to mourn the downfall with his spouse. She sees this fall, commiserates, while come king's eunuchs to the gates. A boasted place at Esther's feast, and here the foe revealed the beast. A wrath aroused, a fate is sealed, the gallows wait, its horrors wield. And so God did in 24, complete reversal, shut the door of unrestrained malevolence, God's faithful in his providence. Wow, did you get chills? In poetry form, God, the twist of fate, the one who is sovereign, the one who is never even mentioned in the book of Esther, and yet his fingerprints all over it set to prose. Tell Robin thank you today or sometime in the future for offering that and giving me permission to read it. Well, the story actually keeps getting better. It's not over. That's just chapter 7. In chapter 8, we read that Esther inherits all of Haman's estate, and Mordecai instantly takes his place as the prime minister of 127 provinces of Persia. And this is going to become uh, important a little bit later on, but if I could just read a portion of chapter 8, we're only going to get through a little bit of chapter 8, and then we're going to finish the whole thing next week. But this is what it says after she inherits his estate, and after he is the prime minister, she does something gutsy once more. It says here in Esther 8, verse 3, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagat and the plot that had been devised against the Jews. Stop there. So Haman's dead. But Persia, once the king gives an edict, it becomes permanent law. And so even while the enemy is dead, the law is fixed. And so we see her throwing herself before the king a second time. Verse 4, when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, and remember that, that's going to be important here in a moment. He holds out the golden scepter to Esther. Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said... If it please the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ashwera said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, his right and his left hand people now, they are Jews. Is God not awesome? He says to them, Behold, I have given to Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict is written in the name of the king, and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. So he knows, I cannot stop the first edict, but we can certainly write a second one. You guys are on, ready, Go. And they begin their Ph.D. thesis on how to stop the coming genocide. Well, um, they write it, and translators and scribes are brought in to translate it into dozens of languages throughout the uh, Persian Empire. And couriers are brought in to deliver the letters, and where I want to park it today is Esther chapter 8, verse 15. It's the beginning of the end, and it's a little teaser for next Sunday But listen to what it says, and remember, it was Mordecai that got them all in trouble. It was Mordecai that refused to fly upside down. It was Mordecai that refused to bow to Haman, that was going to be murdered in the morning in a complete reversal. Now watch this in Esther chapter 8, verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. 
Is God not awesome? You say, it's the secular text. There's no talk of spiritual practices. There's no name of God in Esther. And yet we see that's the point that even when we are flying blind upside down in a, in a world of man and it's hard to see God. It's hard to, at times to believe we're tempted to, to drink the Kool-Aid of skepticism, to deconvert and to say, God, where are you? Why are you so quiet? And yet God is just a step off stage orchestrated, orchestrating things, not only in the grand scale of history, but even in our lives in his loving providence, providence. He is there and stay the course. Stay the course. You're going to live to see the days of God. You're going to live to see the, the, the deliverance of God. And this is the story of Esther. And by the way, it's not over yet. It gets better throughout chapter 9 and 10. The glory and the goodness and the grace and the mercy and, and salvation of God. But for the remainder of our time this morning, what I'd love to do is take a step back from this brilliant narrative. Yes, God is the hero, but there are four main characters that we want to just briefly look at, but then drill down on the one main character named Esther. Okay, Haman's first. He is literally the, the caricature of our worst self. He is the upside-down pilot in the upside-down kingdom. And his engines are at full throttle. And just when he thinks he's going to put the nail in the coffin and he pulls back on the stick, he torpedoes himself and impales himself on a 75-foot stake. He's dead. And that's what that poem was about in the just twist of fate in, in what the kingdom of man and what we think we're doing when we go, you know what, I know, uh, forgive my enemy, but you know what, right now I need justice. Pull back on the stick, torpedo. We're more like Haman than we'd like to admit at times. In our stress response and when things are falling apart and we get antsy and angsty and, and we're more like Haman than we want to admit. We're not so godly to say that doesn't apply to my life. When in fact, wow, we can have one profession in another way of, of life in how we do marriage, how we fight with our spouse, how we treat our kids when they get on our nerves, that we're more, more like Haman and just go with our impulse, go with our emotion, push the throttle down, pull back, and destroy our relationships. Second person that we look at is on the opposite end of the scale, Mordecai. We know he's not perfect, but he's the most right side up of them all. Not happy about the negative consequences, but he's just not going to bow. He's willing to pay the price in order to stay right side up. These are the two extremes in the story. They're, they're the two static persons. Most of us find ourselves somewhere in between, more like Ashwaris or Esther, right? Let's look at Ashwaris. He's a mixed bag at best. He's not all bad but he's highly impulsive and pragmatic. He is our amygdala hijack, hyper-arousal self. Fly off the handle. This guy is impulsive and dangerous. He's flying upside down and blind most of the time. Blind by power, blind by privilege, blind by pleasure, blind by alcohol. Substance abuse. It's all over the book. But he's not completely evil or given to evil. Just blind. He's not a paying attention to history. He's not paying attention to scripture. He's not paying attention to leadership best practices. He's not paying attention to himself. And so he ditches his plane several times into the ground throughout these 10 chapters. But he also repents on a few occasions. And God uses this man to save an entire people. So that's Ashwaris, and then we finally, the one we want to look at today is Esther. Most, the one that we have most to learn from, because we see she's in a deep fog, uh, and she's disoriented, and she's flying at night, upside down, in the upside down kingdom of man. She's trying to figure out, what do I do here? Think about her life. She is the child of captives. Her mother and father have died. She's been adopted by her cousin. 
it, it doesn't really seem like she had much choice when the king's officials come for her. It's very possible that she's just a victim of circumstance, drug into the king's court. Her uncle says, oh, by the way, don't act Jewish. Yeah, I'm giving you permission as your adopted father. Eat the lobster. Enjoy the bacon. Don't speak Hebrew. Use the name Esther, not Hadassah, her true God-given name. And yet... Now, here is her uncle, after the edict is issued, that they're going to be annihilated, and Mordecai, her uncle, is coming out of the closet as a Jew, and he's mourning and weeping, and he's tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth, putting ashes on his body, and word gets back to Esther, your friend, your uncle, what is he? We don't know, but he is in a mess right now. And she goes, well, here, here's some clothes. Tell him to put on some clothes. And the messenger comes back and says, he says that there's a bigger problem than that and that you're in a place to do something about it. Mordecai begs Esther, who has so much to offer, but so much to lose. And this is the source of the struggle between the Upside-down kingdom of man and the right-side-up kingdom of God. Yes, I have so much to offer, but don't you see it? I've got so much to lose. And that way of living sounds crazy. This is Esther. This is her plight. And the first thing that we learn from her life and her example is this, a fill-in-the-blank. No matter how committed, you could even fill that out. No matter how, how, how committed to flying right-side-up. No matter how committed, we will still struggle with upside down. Because here's the deal. When, when uh, Mordecai sends word back to Esther with a servant named Hathak and says, please do something. Please do something. You are right next to the king. Please do something. She starts to go into her earthbound logic as to why that is a terrible decision. It's a terrible decision. It's a terrible wager. And this is what she argues. In, in chapter 4, verse 10, says that Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say this, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king provinces know that if a man or woman goes to before the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except for the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I've not been called to come in before the king these 30 days. Mordecai, cousin, father, do you know what you're asking me to do? This doesn't seem logical. This seems costly. This sounds risky. This sounds scary, and we're not guaranteed that it's going to work. I might lose my head from the moment that I step forward into his inner chamber. What kind of wisdom is that, Mordecai? And so it is with us. It sounds illogical. What? Trust God, obey God, the price tag, the insecurity, the cost, the risk that sometimes the ways of God, not getting saved and born again. I'm talking about living as a follower of Jesus Christ. And we look at that and say, that's crazy. I want to go to heaven. I want to be forgiven of my sins, but follow in his footsteps? No, that'll get you killed. So no matter how committed we are, we're still going to struggle. Or you say, it's not that obvious. It's, again, when things trigger me. Something, I don't know why it is, but I go off the hook. I get emotional. I explode. I revert. I click over into a whole different world system, and I get even. I get justice, whatever it is, whether it's calculated or impulsive, we're still going to struggle with the upside down. Many, many of you might know uh, the term Machiavellian. You heard that? A Machiavellian male or Machiavellian leadership. You know where that comes from? 15th, 16th century, Renaissance political uh, 
pundits, uh, Niccolo Machiavelli. Okay, he was um, Italian. And if you know the phrase and you know what it means to be Machiavellian, you know, the kind of guy that just gets what they want at any cost, right? You go, oh, that's upside down. And sure enough, as you study his life, there's plenty of truth and plenty of inspiration in his writings. But you come across these kinds of statements. It's better to be feared than loved if you cannot be both. Politics have no relation to morals. Politics and right and wrong, two separate universes. Don't bother trying to mix them. The promise given was a necessity of the past, but the word broken is a necessity of the present. He's, he's talking about politicians and how you do politics, how you rule and how you lead as a prince. Final one that I'll just cite is, if an injury has to be done to a man, it should be so severe that his vengeance need not be feared. That when you get even with someone or you put them in their place, you make sure you bust every tooth in their mouth. This was in the age of Christendom from Italy. And you go, ew, icky. And yet the idea that we carry, you know what? The ends justify the means in, in pragmatism. And that's just how business is done. Those kinds of thoughts and thinking come directly from Niccolo Machiavelli. That the ends justify the means. And we go, yeah, but we reject that, do we? Can I just tell you, um, politically I'm a conservative. You might not be, that's not my point today. I've always been politically conservative. One of our GOP pundits a few months ago at a conference up in Phoenix actually said this. My daughter was actually present and, and heard these words. I'd love not to have to participate in cancel culture. I'd love that it didn't exist, but as long as it does, folks, we'd better be playing the same game, okay? We've been playing t-ball for half a century while they're playing hardball and cheating, right? We've turned the other cheek, and I understand sort of the biblical reference. I understand the mentality, but it's gotten us nothing, okay? It's gotten us nothing while we've seeded ground in every major institution in our country, and we say, ooh, Machiavelli, we don't do that. We, we stand for right. We choose politeness. Lots of people in here vote conservative. This is one of our spokespersons basically saying, hey, that Jesus stuff, that kingdom on the mount stuff, that stuff doesn't work. I'll tell you what works. Machiavellianism. And plenty of us in here and out there, we've actually bought this. We're going to get involved in politics and we're going to play dirty too. You want to see what's coming? Watch this. And we think we're going to get down in the mud and scrap and that somehow that's going to turn out good for the name of Jesus. And I'm here to say, nope, I'm not going that way. Nope. Do you know that it's Jesus, that it was said about Jesus by the Apostle Paul? He said, um, have this attitude which was in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be held on to at all cost, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to know what Machiavelli would say about that? That's stupid. That's not the way you get in, in charge. That's not the way you hold power. That's not the way you use power. He says if you got nukes, if you got thunder bombs, you flex it. And you blow them up. You bust every tooth in their mouth out. Where Jesus goes, no, you offer your mouth and offer your teeth and you actually stoop low and you bow the knee and you come down and you go, this is illogical. How are you going to defeat the devil in sin by letting him kill you? And it's like, it sounds upside down. So much so that there's books written on the Jesus way called the upside down kingdom. That ain't the upside down kingdom. We're in the upside down kingdom. We're the one drinking the Kool-Aid of the upside down kingdom. We're the ones buying the narrative of the upside down kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus is the only right side up kingdom that there's ever been and it has always been right side up.
We're going to struggle, though. We're going to struggle. We're going to buy in. Can I tell you another reason why we're going to struggle with it? Because no matter which kingdom you choose to fly in, no matter which orientation, it's always going to involve dying. Nobody gets out of this without dying. There's going to be a death, and you cannot avoid it. Okay, and we, we see this principle taking place when, when uh, Esther is trying to negotiate and struggling with, that sounds stupid, that's a guaranteed death trap for me. It may work out, but it probably won't, and that's not a good bargain for her personally. So much to lose. She's the queen. Hide her ethnicity. She lives on in perpetuity, she thinks. But Mordecai points this out to her in chapter 4, verse 12 through 13. Mordecai uh, told what they told Mordecai, what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to her. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Verse 14. For if you keep silent at a time like this, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Esther, don't deceive yourself into thinking that somehow holding on to your life, white-knuckling your privilege, getting what you think you want, your hopes, your dreams, don't think that you're going to escape dying. You're going to die, Esther. In your whole household, that includes him. We're dead. Don't think you're going to get out of this, Esther. Then he goes on to say, um, who knows whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther is at the crossroads. People, we're at the crossroads. And you and your life, maybe even this past week, how are you going to respond to your husband? How are you going to respond to the crisis in your household? How are you going to respond to the, the people that you lead? How are you going to respond to your boss or any number of other things? You're at a crossroads. Which one am I going to choose? Because I'm about to lose my job. I'm about to lose my marriage. I'm about to lose my son. And you're at a crossroads, but you know what the right answer is. You're just terrified of the consequences. And that's where Esther's at. But watch what she does. Young, beautiful, powerful, and privileged, compromising Esther, when faced with the, the decision, says this. Verse 16, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights, night or day. Eat or drink. That's something. Like fasting from food is one thing. Fasting from water is another I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She recognizes that she's already dead. That her life is in her hands. And that no matter which way she decides to fly, it's going to include a death. You will most certainly die, Esther, if you do nothing. You can try to hold on to your life, try to hide your ethnicity. But in the end, they will find you. Or you can risk your life today. Count yourself as a dead man. Do the right thing. Possibly save the world. And you know what? It's actually the same call that each one of us faces personally. Did you know that? Do you know that Jesus spoke to this exact issue in two verses in John's gospel? John chapter 12, verse 24 through 25. The exact same option is given to each human being. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. And you go, oh, he's talking about himself. He's not talking about me. That's about the Son of God offering his life. A kernel of wheat is going to die, and then there's going to be a spiritual explosion of the church. And you go, high five, yes, true, yes indeed, but guess what? Then he's going to say, and this is an, uh, uh, an irrefutable universal theological principle. And in the next verse, he offers the same formula and same hope to everyone hearing him. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Period. End of sentence. You're going to white-knuckle your life? You're done. You're already dead. Your white-knuckling itself is the mark of death, of selfishness and shallowness. And he goes on to say, and whoever hates his life in this world 
will keep it for eternal life. Can I just point out, either way, you're dead. Either way. Either way, I'm dead. The only difference is, when I choose on the front end and count the cost and say, no, I'm going to fly upright. I'm going to trust God with my life and I'm going to fly right side up. And the dying happens on the front side. Then guess what happens? Life flows out of it. And an abundance of life. And we find out that they are the ones, those who count not their lives as, as sacred unto themselves, are the ones that are really living. In fact, if we go back to Philippians chapter 2, have this attitude in you, which was in the attitude of Christ, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to at all costs or a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, born into the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I left out this next verse. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Either way, you're dead. In the first instance, you hold on to your life, your hopes, your dreams, your fears, and you use your instincts, and you go with your gut, and you run on your own track, flying upside down, and guess what? You're going to torpedo that plane into the desert floor. But when on the front side you go, nope, Jesus, take the stick, show me how to fly. Ooh, that sounds scary. That sounds actually unwise, but you made it clear, I trust you. And yes, you will die. You will die to self in that moment. You will die to your own brilliance and your own control of your life. Only to find you are flying upright and God is lifting you. Here's the third thing from the life of Esther. The more I practice this right side up flying, this right side up living, the more normal it becomes. Remember how hard it was for the first time for Esther to go in before the king? Hold a three-day fast. And then even when she did it and she got the golden scepter, praise Jesus, she got the golden scepter. And her request is, come to a banquet. And then at the banquet, he says, what do you want? She goes, come to another banquet. And I don't know if she's got cold feet or if it's the wisdom of God or both and. All that rolled to, and, and we get the 24 hours in between and all that God does. But we see her being so slow and methodical and cautious. But in chapter 8, what we read, she throws himself, She throws herself at the foot of the king. In, cha in chapter 8, verse 3, she throws herself down and weeps and pleads with him. And you go, what's the big deal? I mean, he loves her and now we know that it's safe. No, look at verse 4. When the king held out the golden scepter. Like she's still taking her life in her own hands, except this time she's already counted herself as dead. And so the second time she obeys the Lord and steps forward for the sake of the Jews, this time gets more automatic, more normal, more rhythmic. And I'm here to tell you, uh, some of us, and I've talked about this in one other sermon, but it's something that I'm, I'm thinking a lot about these days. I like a brand of Christianity that costs me something. I like the feeling when I face enormous temptation and I come out victorious because I wanted it so bad. There's another thing happening. And that is Jesus himself by his spirit so transforming me from the inside out that things that once were a great temptation aren't even on my radar. And guess what? It's happening for you as well as you practice flying right side up in the kingdom of God. There's something where, the, where there's new temptations, there's no power struggles, there's new struggles, but the old things you're like, what? That used to be a big deal. It's just not a big deal. Why? Because God's doing a new work in my life and I don't even want it anymore. The same thing's going on with Esther that the more we practice right side up, the more normal it becomes. Got one scripture for you on that. Hebrews 5.14 that just nails it shut. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice 
constant practice, you are flying upright in the upright kingdom. And you're practicing. And you are practicing to distinguish good from evil. You're trained by it. It starts to become the normal you. Instead of always flying upside down. Well, what do we do today? What's, what's the takeaway? How do we make this practical? Can I give you a bottom line that you can actually pray through and talk to the Lord about? It's this. My job today and tomorrow and the next day, my job, no matter what the temptation is, no matter what it is that I want to white knuckle, my job is to die to the upside down kingdom of me. So now it's not the kingdom of men. It's not... Persia, this is me, because at the heart of Persia is the heart of a fallen human being. My will, my lusts, my longings, some of which are good, some of which are bad, but a willingness to release the control. My job is to die to the upside-down kingdom of me. God's job what he will do with that is to transform me into the right-side-up kingdom of him. Now, here's what I don't want you to hear. i got to wait for the desire to change. Listen, if you know you're flying upside down, do the right thing. Don't go, I don't know if it's me. I don't know if it's self-righteousness. I don't know if it's man-made religion. I don't want to do it if it's not God working through me. Ah, I'm so confused. No, just do the right thing. Just practice the right thing. Die to yourself and do the right thing. And what you'll find over time is God is working in and through that to transform you from the inside out. We cannot transform ourselves. We cannot change ourselves by obedience. That's not the point. We are just dying to self-will. And allowing God to do an inside work from the inside out and transform us. My job is to die to the upside-down kingdom of me so that God can transform me into the upside-down, upright, up, right side, upside, right, kingdom of him. There we go. Now you go, where's that in the Bible? Let me give you three or four places. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said this to his disciples. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself. So Jesus calls... The thing that we need to die to, he names it the self. And he doesn't mean you're an icky creature. What he's talking about is you and I thinking that we know what's best for us. What I think, or maybe what our parents buried in our, our psyche, when you grew up, you need to do this. That we need to die to that stuff. In our human agenda... Die to self. Take up his cross and follow me. Paul would call the self the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the self and the flesh have great yearnings. And it's not that all those yearnings are bad, it's that they're dangerous. And we don't know enough to actually fulfill them well. And instead, it's better die and offer them to the Lord. Let him have your desires. Surrender your self-will to him. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul would say it this way. Put off your old, old self. So now he's harvesting the words of Jesus and he's talking about the self, which I believe is the flesh. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the image or the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul personally in his own testimony, Galatians 2.20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer. So now the, the self and the flesh is the I. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Take away today, men and women, my job is to die to the upside-down kingdom of me. What is it that's in your life that you're facing? What is it that you want to white-knuckle? What is it that in your own instincts and, and 
uh, belief system, you think that it's time to push the forward on the throttle and pull back on the stick. Can I just encourage you, slow down, take your hand off the throttle and the stick, and talk to Jesus. Jesus, I think I know what to do here. Slow it down. I'm going to release my controls right now, and we're going to have a, a little bit of time together. We're going to read the scripture. I'm probably going to talk to my pastor or my counselor. We're going to slow this thing down. What is it in your life? Is it in your, your sexuality? Is it in your singleness? Is it in your marriage? Is it in your career? Thinking about a major purchase? Maybe it's just a, a minor purchase, but it's something shiny. Something that you really, really want. Practice there. My job is to die to the upside-down kingdom of me. Surrender that. Give it over to the Lord. Ask Him to live His life in and through you. Sleep on it. Take some time. Instead of trying to write the airplane, let Him write it. And learn to fly right side up in the right side up kingdom of him. Ready? Ready for this week? Can I pray for us? Father, thank you so much for the book of Esther and the, the lessons there. Father, we have your word. We have your spirit. We have some years on us. Some of us, some of us not so much. Some of us don't even know you yet. We're on a journey of faith. But Lord, what we realize is no matter how far we go along life's journey, we're never completely transformed. And we still get disoriented and confused. We're impulsive. We fly off the handle. Father, we make a mess of our relationships, a mess of our own reputation, and a mess of the testimony that we bear for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us to slow down and, yeah, it might come at a crossroads of a time and a place where we know there's a very clear line. But Lord, it's also likely to come on our drive home in a conversation with our spouse. How are we going to be behave? How are we going to respond? Lord, would you give us grace and mercy as you did Esther? Would we find ourselves at the end standing upright in the upright kingdom of God, learning the rhythms of the upright kingdom? Help each person here this week in whatever uh, vocation or lifestyle or whatever thing they go into this afternoon that we might honor, glorify, bless, and experience the benefits of you. We pray it in Jesus' precious name together. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.